Well, good morning and uh, Happy New Year. So we usually have people at our house on Sundays, and I like to ask questions. And one of the questions I asked is, what is one of your favorite books in the Bible? And this one particular Sunday, we went around the room, and the overwhelming majority said the Book of Romans. So take your Bibles and turn to Ecclesiastes. I failed to mention to you that two people mentioned Ecclesiastes, but really do turn to Ecclesiastes. <laughs> and I will read verses 1 through 13. To everything there is a season, a time for every purpose under heaven, a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to pluck what is planted, time to kill and a time to heal, a time to break down and a time to build up, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance, a time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones, a time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing, a time to gain and a time to lose, a time to keep a time to throw away, a time to tear and a time to sow, a time to keep silence and a time to speak, a time to love and a time to hate, a time of war and a time of peace. What profit has the worker from that in which he labors? I have seen the God-given task with which the sons of men are to be occupied. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity in their hearts, except that no one can find out the work that God does from the beginning. I know that nothing is better for them than to rejoice and to do good in their lives, and also that every man should eat and drink and enjoy the good of all his labor. It is the gift of God. Now, this is the last day of 2023. That doesn't come as any surprise to you. And even though we're about to begin a new year, in one sense, there's not much new about New Year's Eve. We have Thanksgiving around the end of November every year at the same time. We have Christmas Eve and Christmas Day at the end of December, the same time every year. And we have New Year's at the very same time every year. We all experience this change of the year. Now, some have experienced five years, some of the kids 10, 20, 30, 40, 50, 60, 70, 80, 90, and our dear sister Oskins is getting close to 100 years of experiencing New Year's, but we all experience it. Though we experience new and old things, especially as we get older, they all seem to be the same. Birthday celebrations, anniversaries, weddings, children being born, graduations, or our everyday go-to-work routine that we seem to enjoy. However, our memory plays tricks with us, and at times one day just seems like all the other days. But we step back, and we have to say that everything is kind of blending together to form something that we call life. Life here 
in California, for those that are in other states, your particular state. But we do step back and we have to say that everything is in a perpetual change. I am simply stating that which is obvious and that which we all experience. And for New Year's Eve, I think the book of Ecclesiastes is perfect. Now, the book of Ecclesiastes is a sermon by Solomon. And the word Ecclesiastes means preacher. So you would have to take a look at this book since a preacher, that's the name of the book. It's a message by Solomon. It appears to be at the end of his life, after he's repented of his idolatry, and he appears to recover from this fall, and he puts together this philosophy of life, study of life. Now, from verses 1 through 8, some of you are going to remember this, but there was a band in 1965 called The Birds, B-Y-R-D-S. They did a song called Turn, Turn, Turn. They took that song literally from these verses, 1 through 8, and they sang that song. It was very popular in 1965. But they really covered the song. Someone in 1962, Pete Seeger, no relation to Bob Seeger. Some of you only know who Bob Seeger is. But he was a folk singer, and he sang this song as well. So this is a very well-known part of God's word that people knew about. Even I knew about it. I wasn't a Christian. I didn't even know what the book of Ecclesiastes was in 1965. I was, forget about that. But anyway, it is a song that was very well known during that time. It was during the time of the Vietnam War, and they would center on a time of war and a time of peace. Now, our preacher makes a statement in verse 1. To everything, there is a season, a time for every purpose under heaven. What he is basically saying is that there is a season. There is a time for all things, and all things have a purpose. Or, if you could, there's a season, and there's a reason for every season in life. But the natural question is, in verse 1, is why does he make that statement? What, what is, why does he state this? Um, what I'm getting at is context. He said something else for the first two chapters. Just like the fourth of the book is already gone, and we're picking up right here. And so we've got to ask the question, why is verse 1 there? It helps with us to understand context. It'd be like you catching a movie that's about 30 minutes in. You're not going to be able to understand much of the movie because you've missed 30 minutes of it. So we missed 30 minutes of Ecclesiastes. My job in less than 30 minutes, much less than 30 minutes, is to tell you what the preacher talked about for those first two chapters. The first two chapters, Solomon makes a statement that carries throughout his sermon. And that statement is, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Meaningless, meaningless, all is meaningless, is what he's saying. What he is proposing is that everything is frustrating, futile, meaningless, and has no lasting benefit. Sounds depressing, doesn't it? It's an obvious observation that he makes. He proves his point with the frustration of life, cycle of life, if you will, for one generation comes and it leaves, and another generation comes and takes its place and leaves. And this continues on and on and on. It rains. 
There's rivers formed. They go into the sea. The sea is never full, and yet there's evaporation. It rains, rivers, sea, and he goes on like this with this cycle of life. We might, in the 21st century, equate this cycle of life to when I had hair, I would get a haircut. And I, believe it or not, I would look in the mirror and say, oh, this looks perfect. But it only lasts about eight weeks, and I've got to go get another haircut. And then I stand in the mirror again, and I say, wow, not really. <laughs> and then eight weeks later, I go get my haircut again. That, there's a cycle right there, and it is throughout our entire life. I took the trash cans out last week, and you know what? I'll have to take them back out again another week, and then another week, and another week. There's this cycle of life that continues on that is not broken. Man can't even express it. You couldn't even express it. I could sit here, stand here, and preach about the cycle of life to make you so, I don't know, insanely mad at me. Just move on, Rick. We got the point. But that's the cycle of life. Every one of us go through is a cycle of life. What is to be will be. What is to be done will be done. There's nothing new because... What has already been done will be done. Sounds like I'm talking on top of myself, doesn't it? We'll get there, though. Solomon, though, even views his entire life of acquiring things, and he says, meaningless, meaningless, all is vanity. It would appear that there is no purpose in all things that come to pass. It would be natural to come to a fatalistic, meaningless conclusion of life. We might as well eat, drink, and be merry, for nothing can prevent the cycle of life. And in that cycle of life, there is death. It would appear there's nothing that can prevent what's going to happen to every single one of us here in this auditorium, and that is that we are going to die. However, to prevent wrong conclusions to say, well, we might as well eat, drink, and be merry because we're all just going to die. This is just one bummer of a life. Solomon anticipates that, and therefore he says in verse 1, to everything there is a season, a time for every purpose under heaven. It stops us from saying, what's the use? What's the use? We're just going to get old and die. Solomon anticipates that, and he comes up with verse 1. Verse 1, from what I can tell, is a thesis. A thesis is a fancy word, kids, for a statement that needs to be proven, and that's what he says. He says, there is indeed a season for everything. There is a time for everything, and there's a purpose for that thing that happens. A reason why the events of life take place and a reason why the events of life change as well. One translation says, in everything under the sun, there is a time. And then from verses 2 through 8, and I'm not going to go through every single one of them, you have a time to be born and a time to die. We all know that. This is nothing new under the sun, but this is something that many want to try and ignore. Not the time to be born, but the time to die. And he goes on and lists all the events in between 
the time to be born and the time to die. We know this. And we see here what I just read, time to mourn, time to dance, time to weep, time to laugh. We see that these are natural observations and they are vastly different from one another. It's almost as if you have a spoke on a wheel, one moment it's up, the next moment it's down. That time to mourn, wait for it now, time to laugh. Time to weep, wait for it now, the time to dance. They will indeed come to pass. And something that's contrary takes its place. That's how he has it there. Time to kill, a time to heal, a time of war, and a time of peace. Is it daytime right now? Give us a few hours. It's going to be night. Is it winter? Believe it or not, in California, this is winter. Wait for it now. It will become spring. Now, some claim that there's no difference in any of the weather that we have here, but it gets cold. We'll have to turn our heater on eventually sometime in January. But wait for it. Spring will indeed come about. All seems arbitrary with no purpose but there is a reason for all things occurring under the sun. Though all things change in heaven, all things proceed by the determinate decree of God. Decree is God's most holy, wise, and powerful preserving and governing of his creatures. That's his providence. His decree is that whatever comes to pass, God has preordained it. God has determined it before time has come to pass. That doesn't make us robots. It just shows that God is in control of his creation. All events are not by chance or luck, nor are they arbitrary, nor are they by man's power, but by the great determiner, God, the Lord of his creation. There's a, pro there's a proverb in chapter 16. It says, the lot is cast into the lap, and its every decision is of the Lord. To take a lot to apply it to us here in the 21st century, imagine dice. There's dice games that go on in back alleys everywhere. Are you meaning to say that when that guy rolls the dice, God has determined what that number is going to be on that dice? Yes. Doesn't God have better things to do than worry about dice being rolled in a back alley? No. You mean to say all those games of chance in Las Vegas, God has determined the numbers that come up or the cards that are played? Yes, that's if we believe the, the word of God is, is, is the word of God, if the Bible is the word of God. God has determined all things, not Mother Nature. We're not being governed by the universe. It is God and God alone. For the lot is cast into the lap, and this every decision is of the Lord. I'm being repetitive here, just as our writer here, our preacher is repetitive. Life repeats itself. Then our preacher poses a question in verse 9. Man's wages, if you will, for verse 9. Man's wages. Verse 9 says, what profit has the worker from that in which he labors? It's an interesting question. What he's saying is, what does man gain? What are his wages? Uh, it's a natural question, I guess, that uh, we might ask, and that is, 
And he may be asking that question, or we, uh, his audience may be asking the question, when do these events happen? How do we know when these events are going to happen? That's what I want to know. And I want to know when it's going to be, I'm, right now I'm laughing, When's it, when am I going to get the bad news? When's that time of weeping? When's that time of mourning? When's that time of laughter, that time of dancing? Good times, adverse times. They're all contrary, they're all changing. Or as a band said in the 1960s, how can I be sure in a world that's constantly changing? So many have thought upon that. These changes that go on, what, what does man gain from all this? What is his wages that he gets? Now our preacher asked this question earlier in chapter one, verse three. He says, vanity of vanities, all is vanities. Then he asked the question about what does a worker gain? He says, what profit has the man from all his labor in which he toils under the sun? He's really asking another question. Is there anything that can prevent the cycle of life, anything that can prevent from death? What does man gain from all of his labors? He also, in chapter 3, verse 22, same question again. For what has man for all his labor and for all the striving of his heart with which he has toiled under the sun? Then he talks about his death. Does man work to prevent him from dying? Answer is no, it doesn't. His question appears to be rhetorical, but he doesn't answer the question because the, the way he teaches is that this question is gonna knock around in your head a little bit and he's gonna continue on his teaching that will help answer the question is what does man gain from this supposedly meaningless life? This has the appearance of frustration and vanity. It might lead to laziness, but to guard against that, you have verse 10 and 11. Verse 10 and 11 are wonderful. Verse 10 says, I have seen, so something that Solomon has experienced, I have seen the God-given task with which the sons of men are to be occupied. The God-given task from the child that cleans his room, right, with a smile on their face, to the father or mother or father and mother that goes to work to provide for their family, to the person that is single and either goes to school or is going to work, or the retired ones who are just trying to keep busy, all are active, all are occupied, all are busy, all are even thinking on these things of life that are going to happen or they are experiencing at that time. Since it's commanded by God, God-given task, we are to be occupied with that. We are to think upon those things that come our way by the hand of God. That is what he's bringing out. Because in verse 11, he makes a wonderful statement here. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Okay, I want you to do something now. We're going to go on a bike ride. All of you are going to go with me on a bike ride. Oh, you didn't bring your bikes? No problem. I brought one for you. And I'll draft. It's only 30 miles. 15, mi 15 miles up to the beach, 15 miles back. You'll make it no problem. And I want us to observe God's creation. So I go get my bike. You're right there with me, right? Get it out of the shed. And I notice on the bike there's tires. And there's a stem to put air in the tires so the tires go round and round so we can make it to the beach. 
and there's spokes on that tire, and there's a frame that sits on top of those tires, so we can sit on it with a seat, handlebars, gears, and brakes. Everything on that bike of ours, now we, before we get on the bike, has a purpose. Down to the smallest screw that keep, puts a little light on the front of my bike. So we hop on the bike, we drive a little bit, and what do we see? We see cars. Cars, they got tires, stem, put air in it, rims, a body, so it moves with an engine that makes it move, and there's seats. Everything in that car has got a purpose. We drive by houses with its foundations, its walls, its roof, its plumbing, its electrical, its stove, its fridge, some washers and dryers. All have a purpose. There's nothing that is unreasonable. All has a reason right there that's been made my man. Okay, we get on the trail finally. Wasn't that far, was it? It's easy, so we're on the trail. We look up and there's blue sky, wonderful clouds. Wow, God has made that. That's, that's spectacular. You see the sky last night, guys? It was incredible. The heavens declare the glory of the Lord. So we travel on our bikes. You guys are right behind me. You're not very far behind. We look to the left and there's a field of grass. Every one of those blades of grass have been formed by God and numbered by God, and he's not overwhelmed. Or as Pastor Renahan said, God's not even whelmed. God is not overwhelmed. We continue on. We see trees. How they're all different, and leaves are all different. They're all numbered by God. All different colors, all different shapes and sizes. We continue on, and there's a bunch of rocks. There must be thousands of rocks. They're all different, all made by the hand of God. We finally get to the ocean. There's a lot of water. A lot of water. It's incredible how much water is there. God has it down to the very last gallon, quart, pint, cup, tablespoon, teaspoon, drop. God has it numbered, and he is not overwhelmed. All has been made by him with a purpose. Nothing is purposeless or unreasonable. We look at the sand. I can go on like this all day, guys. Every grain of sand is numbered. It's full of labor. Everything is beautiful. Beautiful. And don't forget the animals. I haven't even touched on the animals yet. A sparrow falls to the ground by the will of God. Fish. Innumerable amounts of sea life that God has formed and controlling their lives. How about the billions, billions with a B of people on the earth, all kept by God, their breasts being numbered, their hairs being numbered, freckles being numbered, color of their skin from the whitest white to the darkest brown or black, weight, height, all, has been created by God, and God is governing all of his creatures, all of their actions, and the creation does something. It screams something. It screams, I am created by one God. I am created by one God. Look at the unity in God's creation to prove that it was made by one God. If there were a bunch of different gods, everything would be fragmented, strange. I mean, you look in the sky and 
if you had multiple gods, one part might be blue, the other part might be red, or it might be black, or it might be green. And there would be no continuity in the seasons. That's if there were multiple gods. There is. There's just one God. Look at the unity of God's creation. That's all I'm saying. It is beautiful. View our bodies. We are fearfully and wonderfully made by God. Just as man has been given knowledge by God to build, and everything has a purpose that man builds, it'd be foolish foolishness on our part not to make that same conclusion that God has made everything with a purpose there's a purpose in everything his creation and his providence his governing his creatures is a thing of beauty he says right there he has made everything beautiful in its time including the time to be born the time to die and all the events in between if that isn't enough, and I've just barely scratched the surface on God's creation, we live on the West Coast. The world doesn't revolve around the West Coast. We have other lands, Southeast Asia, Antarctica. Look at how God has made all of that. And then we look into the heavens, the stars, numbered by God. The fool has said in his heart that there is no God. Literally, what is being quoted there is the fool has said in his heart no God no God everyone knows that there's a God they just suppress that truth more and more and more but remember this you don't need to fight with someone about if there's the existence of God assume they know it and go from there but there's something else that God has put within us he's placed eternity in our hearts also, he has put eternity in their hearts. Eternity here is the idea of a world that perpetuates. It goes on and on and on with the endless changes of life, with their opposites taking its place. All things are sealed up by God, so we cannot know exactly when those things are going to come to pass. But God has put eternity in our hearts. What that means is that we see our life is short and the world continues on without us. If the Lord Jesus doesn't come back, this may not come as a shock to you. But we will not be here in 120 years. Someone else will be here. It will be another generation that will be here. Our hearts know that. God has placed that within our hearts to know that we will continue on. We will get older. I used to sit in the pew as a 26-year-old. Not anymore. I'm, I'm that generation. is getting ready just to... Drop off the edge of the pier into eternity. Every single one of you will happen to you as well. Our lives are short, and yet God's world continues on. Now, what is our preacher getting at? What is his application to these truths? Well, it's found in verse 12 and 13. I know. Notice that he says, he says, I know that nothing is better for them than to rejoice, to do good in their lives, also that every man should eat and drink and enjoy the good of all his labor. It is the gift of God. Notice he doesn't say, I know that everything is good for nothing. We're going to die. He doesn't say that, does he? That's the application. To do good, rejoice in our lives, 
not to conclude that all work or all that is done is meaningless. We are not to be lazy. We're not to do the eat, drink, and be merry type of thing, for tomorrow we die. But the question is, what does man gain for all of his wages, for his labors? That's the question asked in verse 9. I don't think it's money. I really don't. I bet you that you do not work strictly for money. I think you work for what money does. It provides a defense. Ecclesiastes 7 says that money is a defense as knowledge is a defense. It protects us. It keeps us living indoors. It keeps us from the heat and the cold. If one were to labor strictly for money, that's all he works for is money, it would do him no good because you can't eat paper, you can't eat silver, and you can't eat gold, and you can't build a dwelling out of paper. You use it to take care of your needs. If you look at money that way, it's a defense. Man's wages are temporary. Those wages that he earns is to provide for he and his family. Therefore, he is to eat and drink with enjoyment because this is the gift of God. Cheerfully enjoy in moderation these gifts from God. Remember what the book of 1 Corinthians says, that whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory, to the praise, to the credit of God. Enjoy your labors because this is the gift of God. In uh, 24, verse 24 of chapter 3, says, Nothing is better for a man that he should eat and drink and that his soul should enjoy good in his labor. Notice he doesn't say get depressed, be distressed. doesn't say that at all. Now this afternoon, this is a two-part message, this afternoon we will come to the conclusion of the matter for every reason, for every season. I think you've seen some of the reasons for every season. But my first application, if you will, even though we've seen application verse 12 and 13, I'm going to be a little more specific, is first of all, I want us all to view God's creation. We just went on a bike ride. You guys didn't get too hot or sweaty, I'm assuming. But we went, all, went on a bike ride, and we saw God's creation. During this week, parents with your children, when you go on walks, or if you're just going on a walk, go to a park, your backyard, whatever it may be, look at God's creation. Teach your children about the creator who has made all things, even their very own bodies. View God's creation and learn from it. When I taught the high school Sunday school class, that was a long time ago, some of you may have been in that class. Uh, there was one day that we, we went on a, on a tour, a uh, little tour. I didn't take them out off the campus, but we went over to the uh, playground. And I asked them, do you guys hear anything? You know, they're, they're looking at me like I got a third eye on my forehead. And what do you mean? I said, don't you hear that? No, we don't hear anything. I said, you can't hear from the grass or the flowers saying I'm created by God? It is, it's very quiet at night, but do that and hear God's creation saying, I am created by one God. 
I'm being redundant. I've already mentioned that. I spent a lot of time on that, but I do want to emphasize the necessity of teaching our children, teaching ourselves to view God's creation, to see that everything has been made by God and Him alone. The second thing is, is I want you to see the enjoyment in food and drink as this is a gift of God. That's why we pray before we eat as we give thanks to God. I've said this many times before, so forgive me in that sense, but I've said this many times before, God could have made food taste like gravel, but he didn't because he's a good God. And there's enjoyment in the food that we partake of. These are temporary blessings, but they are to be to the praise and the glory of God, even small things such as enjoyable food. They're lawful, legitimate enjoyments. But here's the evil. Man buries his heart into these temporary blessings and does not lift up his heart with thankfulness to the giver of these gifts. And he should. At the very minimum, listen to me, all of you, even those that could care less what I'm about to say, at least listen to this. At the very minimum, when you go to bed at night, at the very minimum, you should at least thank God for the food that he gave you. Just to do that. Can you do that at least? At the very minimum, you should be able to do that. But man buries his heart into these things. He tries to turn the temporary into eternal blessings. And that will never do. Vanity of vanities. If all people see is the food and not the giver of the gift. Thanksgiving is a time where people are to give thanks. Oh, yeah, we have a national holiday of Thanksgiving. But you listen to a lot of the people, and they're not thanking God. They're thanking one another. Now, there is a truth to be thankful for the people that God has put in our lives. But be quick to say it's God who's given these people into our lives. Be quick to say it is God who's provided for our needs, gives us food and shelter and clothing, these things. We are to be a happy and thankful people. I remember seeing this show, this is oh, early 70s, and uh, this family, this family that was portrayed, they, they took in a stranger, and so he would have a Thanksgiving meal. And the stranger sits down, and, the, and they all bow their heads to pray, and the father asks the stranger, would you like to say grace? He said, sure, love to say grace. They all bow their heads. He lifts his eyes to heaven and says, God, thank you. I think he said more in those two words, three words, than a lot of what people maybe pray over their food about. It's not the amount of words that's used, but the heartfelt thankfulness to God. We live in an extremely rich nation. Many people just do not have the bare necessities, and we have more than we can ever think of. And it's right there at our hand, at our, at our fingertips. So we should, at the very minimum, enjoy what God's given to us and be thankful to him for his gifts. Which brings me now to the next point, which I'm, I was hardly wait to get to because I'm a, I'm a gospel minister. I love to get to the good news. I've been giving good news, but God's greatest gift should not be ignored. His greatest gift is his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus Christ came into the world. We just celebrated Jesus being the reason for the season. Why are we so happy about God sending his son into the world? 
Well, when I used to sit where you sat and go back about 60 years ago, I had no hope at all of being right with God. None. I'll just do the best I can. I was told, don't sin and you'll be okay. Well, that didn't help me at all because all these other people are, are greater than I am. All I do is sin, whether it be lying, immorality, drunkenness, disobedience to parents, stealing, taking God's name in vain, not being to church on Sunday, whatever it was, I, I couldn't stop. It was more than I could handle. And so I didn't understand people getting all excited about Jesus coming into the world until I heard about Jesus and heard Jesus in his word saying that he was a friend of sinners. He was a gift that God has given to his creatures that have got souls that never die. And that one is able to save me from my sins and keep me from my sins so I would not be a practitioner in those sins. Not that me not doing those sins is going to save me. Brother, I still sin just as you all do as well. And those sins are enough to send me to hell. But Christ has saved me. Think of this. Your sins are forgiven you through the work of Jesus Christ. Think about that for a moment. God's greatest gift in this season was him sending his son because he knew that we couldn't save ourselves because of our sin and our rebellion. Our nature needed to be changed. God did it in his son. The greatest gift, greatest gift is the Lord Jesus Christ. He humbled himself, took upon himself flesh, our flesh, tempted in all points, yet without sin, went to the cross, made payment for the sins of his people, was raised from the dead. He is seated at God's right hand. He is still the greatest gift today. Greatest gift. God's greatest gift. Thank the Lord. Praise him for this, his good gift. And then another point here is we should seek to do good. That's what's brought out here in verse 12. Seek to do good. In the book of Ephesians, we are told, Christians are told that they are saved by grace through faith not of ourselves, is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. But then he continues on. Paul says, for we are his workmanship, created for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. That truth should not make us lazy. Oh, wait a minute. We're his workmanship. God's working in us. God is at work within us. For those of you that are Christians, consider this awesome thought here. That God is at work within us. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both the will and to do of his good pleasure. God at work within the Christian should bring us a devotion and a reverence and thankfulness. And therefore, since God has been good to us, we will be good to our fellow man, even to the harsh, to love and word and thought, as well as in deed. And God's word determines what are good works. Not what we think are good works, but what is God's good works. God's good works, our Lord Jesus brought this out when he would preach about someone that would do wrong to you. You don't repay evil with evil. We need to be careful of name calling, being persecutors. We walk by faith. And the Son of God who has loved us and given himself for us. And we walk by 
God's word. So, we have a new year upon us. I had to do a lot of work today, didn't I? Bike rides and all that. Hopefully we have learned from the preacher that we have seen the God-given task that which the sons of men are to be occupied with. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity in their hearts, except that no one can find out the work that God does from beginning to end, but that's okay. Because I know that nothing is better for them than to rejoice, to do good in their lives, also that every man should eat and drink and enjoy the good of all his labor. It is the gift of God. We should be thankful people for this year. Let's pray. Well, Father in heaven, we do hallow your name and praise you. We thank you. It is you who gives us life and breath and all things. You have provided for us our daily bread. You've given us jobs. You have provided for us by giving us, more importantly, your son. So we thank and praise you for Christ's willingness to save us from our sins, him being more willing than we are. We thank you and we praise you for your greatest gift. We pray now that you would seal these words to our hearts, that we would grow in grace, that the unconverted would be converted. Use this word to bring many to faith in Jesus Christ. So hear our prayers, do good to our souls, even for this year, 2024, for we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.